0: Fathers, we head into the last session of our night. We pray that you'd keep us alert and awake and refreshed and encouraged and challenged to be more like your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to take your hand and uh, hold your left hand up like this, right here, like this. And we're in the last week of the life of Christ. And I'm going to help you figure out a way to remember what's in the last week of the life of Christ. A good Jewish week has eight days in it. It goes really uh, from Sunday to Sunday. So we're going to say Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, because we all know what happened on Easter Sunday, what? The resurrection. That'll be when we get there, we'll, we're going to see a resurrection. But take your hand starting with your thumb, touch each finger. Here we go. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, back up to your ring finger, Friday, Saturday. And what happened Easter Sunday? The resurrection. Okay, what happened that first Sunday? The triumphal entry. What happened on Monday? The temple cleansing, and then Tuesday was the testing of the Lamb. lamb. And what happened on Wednesday? Very good. It's called the Day of Silence. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of stuff happened on Tuesday, but we're not given any information uh, on Wednesday, rather. But but we're still on Tuesday, so if you would, please take out your harmony. Uh, And Jesus is still being investigated as our perfect Passover Lamb. He's been attacked over his authority up until now. Now we're in paragraph 144. He's going to be attacked over his politics. He's going to be attacked over his politics. And he's going to be attacked uh, by two groups of people. Verse 15 are the old Pharisees. They went out and planned together to entrap him with his own words. Then they sent to him their disciples along with the Herodians. Now that should make your hair on the back of your neck stand up. We've seen these two groups come together one other time. Pharisees and Herodians generally hated each other. They were like cats and dogs. Pharisees were conservatives Herodians were liberals. Pharisees wanted the reinstitution of everything Jewish. The Herodians were happy with Herod's rule. And normally they would not come together, but their livelihoods are endangered because Jesus has cleansed the temple and cost them all a fortune. So they come together saying, Teacher, I love these guys, we know that you are truthful and you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You do not court anyone's favor because you show no partiality. That's Hebrew. Then tell us, what do you think? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They got him now. We're testing the Passover lamb. If he says pay taxes to Caesar, who's upset? The multitude. If, they say, if he, Jesus says let's, let's not pay taxes to Caesar, who's upset? The Romans. We got him, right? And so again, Jesus steps into the fray. Jesus realized their evil intentions and said, nice people. No, he called them what? Hypocrites. We'll find that word a lot tonight. Why are you testing me? Do you know what a hypocrite is? A, a hypocrite, the Greek word, is hypocritos. It means one who wears a mask. It's, one, it's used of an actor. You know this. And, and in the Greek theater, you could have one or two actors play a dozen parts, and they would just hold masks up to their faces. And a hypocrite is one who is one thing on the mask, but behind the mask there's something else. You with me? Jesus gets that He says, Hypocrites, why are you testing me? Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. Again, they were in Israel and they were in the temple area and a denarius had Caesar's image on it so a a self-respecting Pharisee would not even carry a denarius. They used shekels. They had special permission from Rome to print shekels. Jesus said to them, Whose image is this and whose inscription. They replied, Caesar's. He said to them, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So he institutes here the principle of the separation of church and state, and then he says in verse 22, and it says, when when they heard this, they were stunned, and they left him and went away. You see, they had no answer for him. He gave them the best answer possible, and so the, uh, by the way, the Messiah will replace Caesar at some point, but he hadn't yet, okay? We still have government. There's nothing wrong with our government. Our government is ordained of God, as all governments are. They all, they all have a purpose. If they don't serve their purpose, they ought to be disobeyed. But in, in this case, Jesus says, render to Caesar what belongs to him. So he's attacked first about his authority. He's attacked about his politics. Now he's going to be attacked over his theology. Remember, Jesus didn't go to rabbinical school. And that had certain people upset. Matthew 22, that same day, we're still on Tuesday. We're in the testing of the Lamb stage. We're on Tuesday, what is it, April 3rd? Is that what we said? Yes, April 4th, the 12th of Nisan in 30 A.D. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came with a riddle. The The Sadducees are liberal. They were religious, but they're... They didn't really believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in most of the Bible. They they got rid of the they didn't they didn't agree with the prophetical writings at all. And they certainly didn't believe in an afterlife. You live here and now. That's why they're so sad, you see? See what I did there? And they come up with this riddle that they had worked over and again, verse twenty four teacher Moses said, if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and father children for his brother. That's Deuteronomy 25. It's called the principle of leveret marriage, which is a very interesting thing. I think you would make sure that your brother married a really good woman if we still did this today. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother, and the second did the same, and the third down to the seventh. Who is this woman? Last of all, verse 27, the woman died. In the resurrection, which, by the way, we we Sadducees don't believe in, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will they be? For they all had married her. Woo, this is a lady here. It's interesting because there are prophetical writings that answer this question, but Jesus doesn't go to the books of the Bible that the Sadducees disagree with. He uses doctrine from the Pentateuch. And he answered them, "You are deceived because you don't know two things, either the scriptures or the power of God." They don't know the scriptures because in verse 30 in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not spoken what was have you not read what was spoken of God, "I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob." First thing is In heaven, there's no marriage. Some of you wives are out there shouting, Amen, glory to God. God gives us marriage on the earth for three reasons. One of the first things Gwen and I do when we do premarital counseling with young couples, we want them to understand why marriage exists. It's to reflect God's image to the earth, it's to reproduce godly children, and it's to rule in the spiritual warfare which takes place on the planet. If If your marriage is not geared toward those three things, It might be a fine marriage, but it's not doing what God intended marriage to do. But in heaven, all three of those criteria have been met. God's image is reflected completely. Children are no longer necessary to help rule in the spiritual warfare because God has won. So there's no need for marriage. Now, I hope I get to live in the same mansion as my wife, but my guess is she'll be much closer to the throne of God than I will. So, you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. Look at your own Bible, he says, verse 32. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God. It it doesn't say, say boys, I was the God of Abraham. God still is the God of Abraham and Abraham still is alive. You meatheads, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Oh. When the crowds heard this, they were amazed at his teaching. You betcha. Because all they did was quote the rabbis and quote the rabbis and quote the rabbis. And here's Jesus giving them upfront good stuff. The people are amazed. The Pharisees were encouraged. In fact, if you look at the Luke account, Luke, uh, Luke 20, verse 39, some of the experts in the law teacher uh, answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And the third is the Sadducees are silenced and they have no more questions. As far as they're concerned, the Lamb has passed the test. And there's one last test here. It's an attack really on, on the greatest command. I'm guessing one of these Pharisees is there and they've heard this discussion with the Sadducees. And by the way, the Sadducees used to drive the Pharisees nuts with this riddle. It's like, oh, we finally got an answer for those miserable Sadducees. It would be like somebody getting the playbook from Florida State that went to Florida, you know. And so he comes to Jesus, verse 28 of the. Mark account Mark 12:28. One of the experts in the law came and heard them debating. When he saw that Jesus had answered them well, he said he, ans- he asked him which commandment is the most important of all. Jesus answered, "The most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these." The expert in the law said to him, "That is true, teacher." you are right to say that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifice. When Jesus saw that he had answered thoughtfully, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and underline this, then no one dared dared any longer to question him. His authority is intact, his politics are intact, his theology is intact, and his understanding of the law is intact. He is the perfect Passover sacrifice. Isn't that great? Picked out on Sunday, just like you would your little lamb, and then you would test the lamb Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday before eating them on Thursday night. Jesus fulfills everything for us. And now, paragraph 147. He's got a question for them. The Matthew account, chapter 22, verse 41, while the Pharisees were assembled, Jesus asked them a question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. And he said to them, how does David, by the Spirit, call him Lord? Saying in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to answer him a word, and from that day on, no one dared to question him any longer. See, Jesus is claiming to be God's Son. God is his Father. Wait a minute. You can't do that. Well, yeah, yeah, you can. David's called, you know, David calls, is called the Son of David, and he's also called the Son of God. The Lord said to my Lord. And the answer for the Pharisees that they did not understand was in, was in the person of the God man. In his humanity, Jesus is the son of David. We looked at that our first week. He is directly related to King David by the birth of Mother Mary. But in his deity, he's directly related to God, and therefore he's David's Lord. That's why David can say, the Lord said to my Lord. You with me? Very important passage. And no one is able to answer him a word, and from that day on, no one dared answer him any question. No one dared to question him any longer. I can't get that out. Now, at the end of this long day, Sunday, triumphal entry. Monday, temple cleansing. Tuesday, testing of the Lamb. Before we get to Wednesday, Jesus has one more thing to say, and this will blow your socks off. It does mine. Matthew 23 is the beginning of a section we're going to call the Olivet Discourse. Beginning next week, we're going to get into all the prophecy in the second coming passages. But in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to now reject the nation's leaders for rejecting him. It's a very harsh passage. It's a passage I've spent a lot of time with. In fact, I did my senior sermon on this when I was in seminary a million years ago. He's going to give, in verses uh, 1 through 12, characteristics of the Pharisees. He said to the crowds and to his disciples, the experts in the law and the Pharisees sit on Moses seat and therefore pay special attention to what they tell you and do it but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach so the first thing he's going to tell us about the Pharisees is that their true nature is hypocrisy and I've got a couple pictures here for you this is one of the seats of Moses taken from one of the ancient synagogues and you would sit in the seat of Moses and you would pontificate and you would give legal opinions and notice on the sides of you Nice marble chairs would be your your buddies. And the Pharisees long to be in the limelight, long to be in charge, long to be the ones making all the rules for the common people. Jesus says, listen to what they say, but don't behave like they do. Because what they do is they're guilty of making the Mishnah an absurd burden while they themselves avoid it. Verse 4, they tie up heavy loads, hard to carry, put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing even to lift a finger to move them. That was their whole purpose. Get people under the Mishnah. Get them under our authority, and we're in charge, and they're not. Third, they are self-seeking. It says, they do all their deeds to be seen by people, for they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. Let me tell you about phylacteries. Phylacteries come from Deuteronomy chapter 6. On the left is what you would see. This is a picture of a Jewish man at the wailing wall. This is a little leather box. And it's tied with straps. You can see the strap goes down his left arm and you can go left or right side. But in that box are three passages from the Old Testament. And the purpose of that is to fulfill Deuteronomy chapter 6, which, yeah, it says you shall bind the Word of God as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And the imagery is a good one. What, What you do and what you think ought to be under the control of the Word of God. So the Jews made phylacteries. Now, some of the Jews made them this big like the guy on the left. (laughs) You know, he's pimping his ride over there. And he's got the title rabbi there, and he's got the garment working. The tassels on the prayer shawl are down here on, on this prayer shawl. He's a Hasidic Jew. And there are 613 knots or 613 tassels, one for each law of the Old Testament. But some of the time... In the day of Christ, apparently the tassels were so long that when the Pharisees walked, it was just like watching a woman in a hula skirt go by. And so Jesus is saying, Don't do that. They're hypocrites. They're in it for the show. They love verse 6 the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and elaborate greetings in the marketplace and to have people call them rabbi. See, they're guilty of seeking titles that give them false authority but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and no one and call no one your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven nor are you to be called teacher for you have one teacher the Christ but here's the principle the greatest among you will be your servant and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted see they're in it for self glorification they're in it for self gain they're in it for self-righteousness, and Jesus says, avoid that. And these are the guys who have rejected me. I'm the teacher. Worship me. Worry about being humble and let God exalt you. And as if that's not enough, verses 13 to 36, he gives them seven woes, W-O-E-S's. And seven is the complete number in all of the ancient cultures. And so he gives them seven specific woes. He says, woe to you, verse 13, experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites! That word hypocrites is used six times in these verses. And he calls them blind. He says, you keep locking people out of the kingdom of heaven for you neither enter nor permit those who are trying to enter to go in. You see, you're, you're not only keeping yourself out of the kingdom, but you're keeping your followers from following me. Woe unto you. Woe unto you, verse 15, experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, you cross land and sea to make one convert, and when you get one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. So you make it so much harder for a person to come to faith after they've come to their Third, woe to you blind guides. He calls them blind five times in these verses. You say, whoever swears by the temple is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is bound by an oath. Blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple that makes the gold sacred? Verse 23, woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, you give a tenth of the weeds in your garden and you forget the justice and mercy and the greater things. You should have done these things without neglecting the other. Blind guides you strain out a gnat to swallow a candle. Woe number 5 is in verse 25. Woe to you. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside might become clean. Woe number 6. Woe to you. You look like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones, of the bones of the dead and of everything unclean. Again, because of the Pharisees, every graveyard in Israel... Had to paint every gravestone, every marker, once a year with whitewash. Because again, there's no street lights, and if you if you come in contact with anything dead, you're unclean. Well, you know, I've been to Arlington, and, and in some ways it's beautiful. But beneath those beautiful white markers is death and every sort of vulgar uncleanness. And then the last woe is verse. 29, woe to you experts in the law. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. Verse 35, so that on you will come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Abel is the first martyr in the book of Genesis and Zechariah is the last martyr in the Jewish Bible. The Jewish Bible says, has a different order. Same books, 39 books, but their last book is Second Chronicles, and Zechariah the prophet is killed in the last book of the Jewish Bible. And the Jewish leaders have always killed the prophets, and so he laments this. Jesus does not, and God, listen, God does not enjoy judgment. God withholds judgment in every circumstance as long as possible so that as many as possible can repent. And so Jesus laments verse 36, I tell you the truth, this generation will be held responsible for all these things. What generation? The generation who said, Jesus, you're getting your power from Satan. That is an unpardonable sin. The nation is judged because of your leadership. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets, stone those who are sent to you. How often I have long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. Literally, you willed it not. There is messianic protection for the nation if you will only avail yourself of my claims and you won't. I wanted to protect Israel. It breaks the heart of God that in 70 A.D. the Jewish nation was wiped out until 1948. It breaks the heart of God what's going on right now in southern Israel in the Gaza Strip. And because of this passage, we begin to get a glimpse as to why. He says in verse 38, Look, your house is left to you desolate. And again, in 40 years, the nation Israel is going to be leveled. It's going to be destroyed. Not one stone is going to be left on another in the temple. For 1,900 years, there is no Israel. Watch. Now watch this. Vicki, this is for you. For I tell you, you will not see me from now until you say what? Baruch, Hava Bashem Adonai. I'm not coming back until the Jews call me back by my official messianic greeting. This is a precondition to the second coming of Christ. Now listen, Christ could come tonight for us. We're not Israel. There are no preconditions for the rapture of the church. In the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the trumpet... Christ could show up before we get home tonight and we'll all be with him forever. Amen? Amen. I'm all for that. But after that, some events have to take place, as I understand them, in the book of Revelation, which will lead to the national conversion of Israel who will be so persecuted by Satan himself under the leadership of the Antichrist that they will cry out to their Messiah, Oh, please come back, you blessed who are called by the name of the Lord. Satan has always hated Israel. And he always will until he's destroyed. In the Old Testament, we find anti-Semitism running rampant because if Satan can destroy the people of God, he can destroy the Prince of God, Jesus the Messiah, from being born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. That's when we did the genealogies. Remember the story of Athaliah? We were down to one little six-year-old boy. But God protected the line of Christ, and now he's here... But Satan also knows it because Jesus is going to go to the cross and be resurrected on the third day that ultimately Satan will lose the battle unless he can destroy the nation Israel between his first coming and his second coming. And that's the reason why we have Hitler's crusade against the Jews. And that's the reason why we have the Nazis and the the Crusades. And that's the reason why we have the Inquisitions in Spain. It's to get rid of the Jews under the domination of Satan who doesn't want the Jewish nation to repent and call back for their Messiah so the kingdom cannot come. Are you with me? And from that day until this, 95% of the persecution done to Israel, unfortunately, is done in the name of Jesus. When I go to Israel and and I meet with my Jewish friends, so many awful things have been done to them in the name of Jesus. That's Satan's work. You know, Hitler was, Hitler was doing his thing through, through the churches in Germany. And the Inquisition was done through the church. Because if Satan can get rid of the Jewish people, and he, get, he gets one last shot, Revelation 12. Satan is loosed on the earth and he goes crazy trying to kill Jewish people. Because if he can get rid of the Jews, they will not see Jesus and cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's why I'm a big fan of Israel. (laughs) Israel's coming is different than my coming. My coming is called the rapture of the church. It can come tonight. They have to come to repentance as a nation before Jesus will come to them. But in the meantime, I want to support Jewish missions And I not only want to support Jewish missions, but, you know, there are some ministries that help Jewish people, but they don't share the gospel with them. They don't want to offend them. It's hard for a Jewish person to come to Christ because of all the things that have been done to them in the name of Jesus. So I think we owe it to the Jewish people who provided us with our Messiah to get them the gospel. One last paragraph at the Temple Treasury, Mark 12 Verse 41, and then Jesus sat down off, opposite the offering box and he watched the crowd putting coins into it. Many rich people were throwing in large amounts. The Pharisees used to bring their coins and there were these large urns and they had long uh, circular tops to them and they would throw coins in them one or two at a time and they'd go round and round and round the, the top of the... They were called the trumpets in the treasury. They were made of brass. And it was all for show. Boy, Jesus has had it with these guys. And a poor widow came, verse 42, and put in two small copper coins worth less than a penny. That's the the least amount you were allowed to give. He called his disciples and he said to them, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the offering box than all the others, for they gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in what she had to live on, everything she had. Next week, when we're together, we're going to talk about these statements that Jesus is making. And they're in this beautiful temple area. And that's the model of the temple. The treasury's there where he's talking about this this widow. And we're going to see that Jesus and his disciples are hearing this destruction. And the house of God is going to be left desolate. And they're going to go to him and say, Wait a minute, look at these beautiful buildings. Look at these massive stones. These buildings are made out of what are called Herodian stones. That's one stone. One stone. It's 42 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet deep and weighs 660 tons. That was a foundation stone for the temple. That's in the tunnel that runs next to the the temple area. And he's going to tell them, you know, guys, not one stone is going to be left on another from this building, the building on top of these stones. And they're going to say, hey, when is that going to happen? And so don't miss next week. Because next week he's going to give us a lot of the detail. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you that he is coming again for us and he's coming again for the Jewish people whom you have set aside for a little while, Romans 11 says, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And Father, we don't know what's going on in the world today, but you do. We know there's persecution of the Jewish people from all sides at all times because Satan hates Israel. And yet we know that you love Israel and you sent your son to Israel to be their savior and ours and that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, there is no male or female because of what your son did for us on that cross as our perfect Passover sacrifice. Help us to never get over your incredible gift to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.